Good morning, Dan and Amy, remembering the uh, life and presidential legacy of President George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush 41. Uh, that was, uh, of course, the topic that dominated the weekend. Uh, we'll have a day, a national day of mourning this Wednesday, December 5th. Markets will close. Flags will remain at half staff for the next days. month. Yeah, yeah, for the next month. Uh, so some of the uh, luminaries and uh, Bush administration senior officials that made appearances over the weekend included his um, Secretary of State, but also his uh, longtime friend, James Baker, who was with President Bush in the final moments, along with uh, James Baker's wife. And here's how he described uh, President Bush's final moments. Yeah, he had a very gentle and peaceful passing, uh, Chris. Uh, only one of his children was in uh, living in Houston, uh, Neil Bush. Neil and his wife Maria were there. My wife Susan and I, uh, his, his rector from our church, St. Martin's Church in Houston. Uh, the doctor, some of the wonderful aides that took care of him uh, in his later years. And it was a sweet, it was a sweet situation. Uh, uh, they made arrangements for all of his children to call in to, to, in effect, tell him goodbye. And his last words, the last words uh, George Bush ever said were, I love you. And he said those words to 43, George Bush, President George Bush 43, who had called in to say, Dad, I love you. Uh, I will see you on the other side. And, uh, and President Bush said, I love you. And those were his last words. <laughs> uh, a president saying goodbye to a president, a father, son saying goodbye to his father. I mean, it's so beautiful. Uh, Baker also uh, said something also unique about those final moments. Irish tenor Ronan Tynan was there. Another tender moment at, uh, about that, uh, Chris, was that the, ten, the Irish tenor Ronan Tynan was in town. He'd come to town just to pay a a courtesy call on President Bush, and he happened to be there, and he sang a couple of songs for President Bush on that last evening, and he sang one of them was Silent Night, and as he was singing, President Bush was mouthing the words of Silent Night. He, he, uh, he had a very gentle and, and easy passing, the kind we ought to all hope we have. All right. Appreciate uh, those details. Uh, the last moments from James Baker for more uh, perspective on uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's life and presidency. We're pleased to be joined by Jed Bavin, former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, now a contributor to The Washington Times and The American Spectator. Jed, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So your your perspective on uh, you, you choose George H.W. Bush, the man, George H.W. Bush, the president. Well, I don't think you can separate the two, and I think that's a very important point that we are kind of piling ourselves into here, because George Bush, the president, was the product of George Bush, the man. The man was probably the final example of someone who was truly prepared to be president, someone who was truly competent to be president. He'd been a Navy war hero, a fighter pilot, well, a fighter bomber pilot. Mm -hmm. I'd gotten shot down once and crashed another time and was able to face death in his young age and was very able to deal with those crises. Later on, I mean, he, he was an ambassador to China. He was vice president. He was head of the CIA. I mean, this is the resume of a man who was, by education and experience, prepared to be president. 
quite frankly, unlike anybody else who's come since. And I think we need to remember that context uh, of George Bush in terms of you know how we go on as a nation. Uh, do we want to have people who are, frankly, not prepared to be president, or do we want to have someone who, like George Bush 41, was really someone who was ultimately prepared for the job, ultimately competent, and quite frankly, did a hell of a good job. So how are you going to remember President Bush? Well, I really don't have personal recollections of him. I was a a political flunky in the Pentagon, and I was not exactly called by the president to do conferences every day. But what I do remember about him was the inspiring way that uh, he had the effect he had on the people in the Pentagon. I was in the Pentagon during Desert Storm. And I will tell you, there were people there who were literally jumping through hoops to uh, to do what the president wanted because, A, they knew it was the right thing to do, and, B, because they really, really liked the man. You know, just as a, well, okay, you, you can talk about a various you know, set, set of uh, circumstances and all sorts of anecdotes. I remember when uh, when we first had Saddam Hussein invade Kuwait, uh, the following morning, I walked into my next-door neighbor's office in the Pentagon. He was a Marine Brigadier General by the name of Tom Drowdy. And he was just hanging up the phone and said, you know, walked in and said, hey, Tom, what's going on? And he said, I don't know, but uh, that was the commandant on the phone. If we're going, I'm going with him. And, you know, of course, that's the kind of thing that you would expect from a Marine, but that's the kind of inspiration that George Bush had. And, you know, the, the things that we did during that war, uh, I remember... First few days of the war, a bunch of our armored vehicles were knocked out by friendly aircraft, our aircraft, because they couldn't see through the dust storms. And apparently General Schwarzkopf sent a short, gruff note back to uh, Secretary of Defense Cheney to say, give me a fix for this. And 24 hours later, uh, I had the one of the people who worked for, for my boss was uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. They're a bunch of insane geniuses that just kind of float around and, you know, you open the door once in a while and say, hey, what you got? And they pop out with something weird. Anyway, the note got from Dick Cheney to DARPA. And from DARPA, 24 hours later, the head of DARPA, Dr. Dick Reese, was coming in uh, to meet with the big guys. And he stopped in my office on the way. I knew him and we done a lot of political stuff together. But anyway, uh, Vic had in his hand what looked like a coffee can. I said, what the hell is that? I says, the answer, he says, it's the answer to Schwarzkopf's problem. And what it was was basically a, a high-intensity infrared emitter that uh, had a piece of Velcro on one side. And what you did was you put Velcro on your tank or armored vehicle. You slap this coffee can-like thing on. You press the on button. And suddenly everybody in the sky can see good guy, good guy, good guy blinking. And you think about that. We went from Schwarzkopf having a note to say, we need this fixed, we need this problem fixed, to within 24 hours, we had a working prototype. You know, that's the kind of thing that we did in the Pentagon back then. That's because George Bush was backing our play and we were backing his. And that's, you know, that that's story from those years. Well, well that uh, may speak to this characterization from uh, Dick Cheney uh, over the weekend that uh, he believes, and you know, he's obviously got a bit of a biased view, but he believes that uh, that George H.W. Bush national security foreign policy team with him and Scowcroft and Baker 
was the best in American history. What do you say to that? Well, uh, they're sure up there in the top three or four. Uh, you know, I worked for Cheney, he's a tough boss, uh, good guy, extremely smart guy. Uh, and again, uh, not someone who would put up with a lot of nonsense and wanted to get the job done immediately. So, yeah, I mean, they may not have been the best. Uh, frankly, I'm having a hard time thinking of anybody who was better. Uh, I know Don Rumsfeld and probably uh, you know, he was his team was as good as any and certainly as good as the, uh, the Cheney team. But other than that, uh, you know, I, I think Mr. Cheney, former vice president, former secretary of defense Cheney, uh, he's right. I think they're, they were certainly among the best and, and certainly in the top three at least. And what do you think got lost from uh, Gulf War One to Gulf War Two, from Bush the Elder to Bush the Younger? I think there was a real loss in terms of perspective. I think that going back, I mean, I was one of the people who very much supported and strongly supported the invasion of Iraq. Uh, frankly, at this point, I wish I hadn't. Uh, I think we knew back then what we know now, and I certainly knew, and I wrote at the time. Uh, I wrote in, I think it was about the 1st of April of 2003, just before we went into, into uh, Iraq. I said, we cannot do nation-building because it will not work in a Muslim country. And I've proven that myself right. I mean, it, it's not rocket science, guys. But when Bush 43 was campaigning, he said, we can't do nation-building. That's uh, the first thing he went in and did, and we've been stuck in Iraq and Afghanistan building nations and losing American lives for 17 years. Uh, it just can't work, doesn't work. And I think the perspective that Bush 41 had was lost uh, by the time his son was president. Now, with the passing of uh, President H.W. Bush, it kind of overshadowed, overshadowed what happened at the G20 summit. We have a new NAFTA agreement. But also, what do you make of this temporary truce in the trade war with China? Well, it's a good thing. Uh, I'm not a big favor of, of tariffs and non-tariff barriers to trade. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly the most uh, strong free trader, uh, frankly, because I don't know a hell of a lot about economics. You know me, guys. I'm a, a bullets and bombs guy. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, I think not jumping off and, uh, and launching a huge trade war with China has got to be a pretty good idea. I mean, we just need to take our time a little bit and see if we can work out. Sure, the Chinese are doing an awful lot of unfair trade practices and worse. Uh, their capture of intellectual property from the United States by their own cyber espionage and everything else they can think of uh, has just got to stop because they're stealing everything we invent. And, you know, they're, they're pretty good at, uh, at taking it and, and turning it to their own uses. So, you know, if that's not going to stop, uh, China has to be punished somehow. And the only way we have to punish them at this point is through trade. That hurts us. It hurts them. And uh, quite frankly, I'm hopeful we can find a way around it without getting into a big trade war. Uh, sticking with the G20, uh, how did you interpret that high five between Putin and uh, MBS? Hey, birds of a feather, man. Yeah. Mutual Admiration you know, Society, oh, that's it? Oh, yeah. Look, this is MBS is not a good guy. We know that. Uh, we knew that from the very first minute he came to power. Uh, not that anybody else was uh, in Saudi Arabia would be a whole lot better because, you know, they are Islamists and, and follow a sect of radical Islam that is never going to allow us to be able to fully coexist with them or, or trust them. Uh, but I think he and Putin recognize in each other the kind of autocrat 
the kind of dictator, the kind of, well, the kind of totalitarian uh, that they can identify with. And, you know, that also is a big signal to us that if we, for example, MBS wants to build nuclear power plants right now, if we don't do it, I mean, you can bet that Putin, Putin will be there in, uh, within 24 hours to do it, and uh, we'll gain all of the advantages and, and power over so- the Saudis that, uh, that we now have, or at least think we have. Now, General Mattis, over the weekend uh, at the Reagan National Defense Forum, uh, interviewed by Brett Baer from Fox, uh, said, look, we don't have a smoking gun that MBS what, ordered the uh, murder of Khashoggi, and he and so just kind of said that matter-of-factly and sort of moved on to uh, effectively reaffirm the president's position with respect to the Saudis, even while there's a bit of an uprising in Congress. Where do you come down with respect to the president's handling of that? Well, I, I think at this point we have to take a deep breath. Uh, you know, it's inconceivable to me that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, that he did not either directly order the murder or at least acquiesce in it and have knowledge of it. It's inconceivable that in a government like Saudi Arabia, that would happen without his knowledge or approval. Mm-hmm. Having said that, what we can do at this point is not at all clear to me. Uh, we can at least tell the Saudis that we believe MBS is dispensable, uh, that he is an obstacle to our alliance, and they can take it from there. Look, it's, it would not be unheard of for his father, the king, to change his mind and say, uh-uh, you're not crown prince anymore, uh, or for more drastic things. I mean, you can have assassinations in Saudi Arabia are not that uncommon. Even a king was murdered uh, in 1975, I believe it was. So, you know, there's a lot of things we can do, and uh, we ought to be telling the Saudis that this guy is, is not someone we can trust and uh, that they ought to do something to uh, get him out of power. He is Jed Batman, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And he joined us on our turnkey.